Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. Bet on all your favorite sports by accessing a wide range of pregame and in-play betting across the NFL, NCAA football, NBA, NCAA basketball, MLB, NHL, and more. Download now on iOS and Android, available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 or older. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. What is going on? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the score's NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, of course, by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolf? Yeah, you know, was, uh, I'm pretty tired. I was up at 4.30 this morning. That's just oh, no. kind of... Baby duties? Yeah. But, uh, that's what life is like these days. You uh, you learn to roll with the punches. So uh, I'm a couple coffees in this morning already and ready to talk about uh, a couple of couple of developments in the league. You know, one potential impending return, a couple returns that we saw last week. Let's let's start with the potential return that we got word of uh, via Chris Haynes. He reported that Kawhi Leonard is ahead of schedule in his recovery from that torn ACL and, quote, has a strong possibility of returning this season. Uh, I mean, we've obviously like had the possibility of Kawhi's return in the back of our minds all season. It's not like that is any kind of great shock but just I guess hearing it spelled out and having that possibility come to the forefront I don't know it just makes me think about how weird this season has been and how I feel like this development is like a perfect encapsulation of this weird season because the Clippers to me have been one of the most anonymous teams in the league right they're puttering around at 500 Paul George was playing out of his mind early in the season. Then he kind of cooled off. Then he had this elbow injury and he's been out for the last three weeks. And the Clippers are still sort of scraping by. Like they're a game under 500. They're ninth in the West right now. They're only a game and a half behind the sixth place Nuggets for the last surefire playoff spot. And I just think it's like the idea of this totally anonymous, totally forgotten team suddenly, you know, getting Paul George and then potentially getting Kawhi Leonard back soon thereafter. And I guess in theory, anyway, vaulting out of nowhere into the contender stratum. Like, I don't know. I just haven't given this team a whole lot of thought and suddenly it feels like we might have to. So where are you at with this Clippers team? I mean, it's really hard to judge because without PG over the last couple of weeks, it's just been them doing whatever they can to get by. And to their credit, the defense has remained excellent. They're, they're fourth in the NBA in defensive efficiency. Offensively, it has predictably been a tremendous slog. I mean, it's... It's the exact it's opposite. L- yeah, the fourth from the bottom. Right? Right? Yeah. It's been a lot of Marcus Morris. And, and and to Marcus Morris's credit, he's been pretty okay, you know, trying to carry that offense because he's sort of their <laughs> best option right now. And yeah. he's just... He's averaging like better than a point per possession in isolation, which, yep. you know, there's been a lot of ISOs for him, but I guess they're, they're doing what they can to get through this stretch. And I think they're, you know, given how good the defense has been, and there's been some opponent shooting luck baked into that, but I think also like their interior defense has been strong pretty much from the jump this season. And I think at the point of attack, like I mentioned the last time we talked about them, I think like Reggie Jackson's probably playing some of the best defense of his career. Bledsoe is maybe like not quite the point of attack monster he was at one point, but he's still been very solid. You know, Terrence Mann has been great. They have a bunch of pieces that could work well as complementary pieces if or when they get both PG and Kawhi back healthy. So it's obviously just speculative and impossible to say because so much just depends on how good Kawhi can be right away. But, you know, do you feel like when he gets back and assuming PG gets back and, and doesn't miss a beat, is this team back to being in that upper crust of the Western conference? Or do you still see them as being kind of a tier below 
I mean, I was going to say the top three. The, the Grizzlies are a half game behind the Jazz for yeah, the third I, seed right unbel- now. So. That is unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, um, yeah and I know, like, real quick, like, I, you could say, you know, well, the Jazz have been, they had the COVID issue recently and even, like, Gobert's missed some time. But honestly, can't really use that when we're comparing them to the, the Grizzlies being on their heels because the Grizzlies played a chunk of the season without Ja. Uh, Dylan Brooks is out now. Like, they've had a ton of injuries. So, I'm not going to use another team's injuries as like, well, this is the only reason the Grizz are that close to them. No, like the Grizzlies deserve all the credit in the world. Back to the Clippers. Yes, absolutely. I put them in the upper echelon, upper crust of the Western Conference if they get Kawhi back this season. Now, maybe maybe the Warriors with Clay back, and I know we're going to talk about that, are in a completely different level. Like maybe the full power Warriors are in a like are even a cut above the Jazz and the Suns. I think that is possible, but I think certainly the Clippers will be in the conversation with the Jazz and Suns, at least if they get Kawhi back, um, obviously get PG back before that too. Like I know you rattled off some of the numbers, but this team, and I, I get what you're saying. They're kind of this like forgotten team just hovering around 500, you know, no star talent right now with both those guys out, but I can't commend the job Ty Lue has done enough this year, or even like the players that are available to them, like offensive struggles aside, you can't really ask for much more from these guys and this team. Like some of it probably has to do with the fact the West is weaker than it's been in a long time, and that has helped them stay afloat. But still, you're you're at the midway point of the season. Kawhi Leonard has not played a game. Paul George has been out the last three weeks. You're 20 and 21. You're ninth, so you're in that play-in range. As you mentioned, they're very close to that sixth seed. They're only two and a half back of fifth, but they're four and a half clear of 11th, who I think is the Spurs right now. So like, they're pretty comfortably in the play-in mix, at least right now. Like I said, PG hasn't played in three weeks. And during that time, they've won in Boston, in Brooklyn on the second night of a back-to-back. And then they beat the Hawks as well. Uh, they're defending their asses off. The offensive struggles, it's like not surprising for a team whose top four in total minutes played this season are Terrence Mann, Reggie Jackson, Eric Bledsoe, and Luke Kennard. You know, obviously Kawhi's been out and PG has missed time, but like Batum missed a ton of time. Marcus Morris, who you mentioned, is playing as well as you can ask him to right now, trying to carry this offense. He missed a bunch of time. Serge Ibaka missed a bunch of time. Like, it's not just the big two here. Like, they've had a lot of absences up and down this roster. I believe they lead the league in man games lost to injury. Most of it has been their best players. Again, you look at the, the four guys who have played the most minutes from them. The fact that they are competitive at all, let alone as competitive as they are, is a testament to the players that have been there and Ty Lue and his coaching staff and and I think if they can carry some of that over, you know, get PG back, who was playing at you know a damn near MVP level almost by, when he went down, and that should elevate them a little bit in the meantime while they wait for Kawhi. And then you add Kawhi to the mix after that, like you can't tell me that team doesn't have a chance to at least compete with and or beat the Suns and Jazz in the playoffs. Again, the Warriors maybe not, but that to me wouldn't be so much about Kawhi not being able to you know take this team over the hump as it would be about the Warriors are just that phenomenal. Yeah, what do you think their best lineups look like if Kawhi and PG are back in the mix? Like, I think, you know, they're, they've got an interesting big man rotation. Hartenstein's been out for a bit, but he's been tremendous when he's been available. I, I like Zubac a lot. And I, you know, it, I don't want to totally discount what they got from him in the playoffs last year, even though I think their best playoff moments probably did happen when they were downsizing and when they, like Batum as a small ball center, I think was excellent. Like not just in terms of what he can do for them as a five offensively, but he, you know, after basically being a a wing defender for most of his career has kind of become a backline big man defender and showing some real rim protecting chops and like made those small ball lineups work. Like I think he's been awesome and very key to unlocking a lot of stuff for them. So, you know, maybe that's still the look, whether you want to call Batum the small ball five or Morris, the small ball five, but I also think, you know, Zubac gives them a lot of that rim protection that's been integral to their defensive success this season. We've seen some signs of life recently from Ibaka and after that, it looked like... That's know, what I was going to say. Like, you asked yeah. about what their best line. If, if Serge Ibaka looks like Serge Ibaka, well, not even of old, I mean, like a couple of years ago, then I think their best lineups might involve Serge Ibaka at the five, you know, like suddenly the options are starting to come into play that I don't, I didn't think they would have this year. Right. I think it's probably, 
I mean, I think Reggie Jackson has to be in there. Just, I I think as, as somebody who can, you know, it's not even about, obviously there's always been those talking points about the Clippers need a point guard, the Clippers need a point guard. And I, I don't know if Reggie Jackson is the answer to that in terms of playmaking, but in terms of somebody who can like apply a bit of rim pressure and puncture the defense and just sort of like get the ball into the hands of like Kawhi or PG on the move or like with a slight advantage that they can attack or extend. I do feel like he is going to have an important role to play for that offense moving forward. So I do feel like he is involved in their best lineups. And then I think Terrence Mann, like with the way that he's played has earned a spot in those lineups as well. Like he has probably been their best perimeter defender this season. And uh, I think what he brings as a slasher, as like a guy who can play without the ball gives like a, a really nice wrinkle to uh, an offense that can otherwise be pretty ISO heavy and stagnant when PG and Kawhi are at the helm. So I feel like that quartet should be like the sort of base quartet. And then it's like the fifth guy can maybe be, not that like, like, I mean, I guess Reggie Jackson can be interchangeable in those lineups as well because you have playmaking in the front court with like Batum, PG, Kawhi. Like maybe that's enough to get you by. But yeah, then, it, I mean, you could go with Morris, you could go with Batum, you can go with Zubac, you can go with Ibaka, you can go with Hartenstein. Like, there's a lot of different directions, I guess, that they could go. But I think, you know, and the yeah, fact you that they... Have, I think you can have two of them on the court sometimes, depending on the matchup, with maybe, like, a Jackson off the court or something. Yeah, like, I, I think, I guess, you know, in just sort of, like, toggling through all those potential options, and the fact that they have they've more or less stayed afloat with all the injuries that you ran down. Yeah. I think it does hammer home the fact that like, this is a pretty deep team. Yep. And for for a team that is built to be kind of top heavy, I, I think the depth around them is maybe, maybe better than I would have expected coming into the season. Same. And I think that's, that bodes well. And again, it's still wholly dependent on what Kawhi looks like when he gets back. And then it's also sort of dependent on like how high can they climb in the West playoff picture? Because if they wind up, you know, having to win a play in game or two and then having to wrangle with, you know, like the Warriors or the Suns in the first round of the playoffs, then it it still could be fairly short lived. But I mean, maybe this goes without saying, but yeah, with a healthy Kawhi back, this is obviously a team to be reckoned with. So, I mean, we'll, we'll keep our eye on that development, obviously. Um, and that's going to be one of the biggest ones to watch moving forward. I don't like when, when is PG even like expected back? I think they gave him like a, like a four week timetable, right? Right. Um, and it's been about three weeks. I think it was like four to six weeks. So I, you know, I, I'm assuming he's back in January at some point, whether it's soon in January, later in January, but I would imagine that before the calendar flips to February, PG right. will be back. And if, yeah. If, and if I mean, the, with that Chris Haynes report, it was just like, there's a strong possibility that Kawhi will be back this season, but yeah. Okay. When this season, like yeah. before the playoffs, like before April, like, like it just, uh, it still is pretty vague in spite of, um, the optimistic language that was used. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. But I just, I think it's worth just giving a shout out to the Clippers who, like I mentioned, have, despite being this anonymous kind of forgotten team, have done a lot of things well. I think, you know, you giving credit to Ty Lue is certainly well-deserved. And I think for all the guys that they have found that have sort of stepped up and done their damnedest to to get the Clippers through this stretch, you know, it's like even deep role players, like Amir Coffey, you know? <laughs> and like, yeah, um, Coffey was great Brandon for them Boston. last night. Great, yeah. Coffey was great for them last night. Was it last night, two nights ago? I can't remember now. Things are bleeding together. But Coffey was really good for them in their last win. Yeah, and I think, you know, the Clippers for for a long time, I feel like, struggled to find the types of players to to fill out the margins of their roster around a, a superstar core. And I feel like recently they've done a much better job of that, and this season has been evidence. So, yeah. Yeah, so uh, just because just I, I was uh, vague there. Yeah, Coffee had 21 points in uh, Sunday's win against Atlanta. Amir Coffee, 21 points on 8 of 12 shooting, by the way. Yeah, he's he's on a two-way, I believe, right? I think so, yeah. Anyway, it's just funny to think like how different the outlook for this team could be just with like the snap of a finger. Like Kawhi's ready to come back and suddenly 
suddenly everything changes, you know, not, not just for them, but potentially for the landscape of the Western Conference and the league as a whole. So, yep. Paul George is the heart of a lion now instead of being a teammate. <laughs> I like this 180 that you've done hey, on uh, the artist formerly known as Tin Man. Yeah, you got to admit when you're wrong and you got to double down when you're right. <laughs> um, is, there, is there anything that you want to double down on while we're here? Hmm. Uh, not on the top of my head right now. I mean, I've been right about quite a lot. Uh, no, I, I, I already took my victory lap with the Celtics' struggles um, a couple weeks ago, although now they're saying that they're not. They, they've gone out of their way to say, you know, they're not going to break up the Tatum Brown duo, but we'll see about that. But other than that, no. I don't. Well, you know, there'll be plenty of time. So you want to tri- you want to triple down on a take, <laughs> despite <laughs> the fact that the most recent reporting is that the Celtics are adamantly not going to break up that tandem. They, you know, they keep listening to Pound the Rock, and I think they'll come to a different conclusion. But uh, I, I think there will be plenty of time in the second half of the season to both celebrate and take victory laps for the things we got right, and to pull one eighties on the things we're wrong about. I mean, speaking of things that you were wrong about, uh, <laughs> the the Dallas Mavericks are playing pretty well right now for a they team are. that is wasting its season away, climbing all they the way are. up to fifth in the Western Conference. Uh, Luca's back and finally starting to look like the Luca we know and remember. Uh, it's almost like they just needed a little bit of time to start knocking down some threes and turn their season around. What do you think? Well, if you if you recall at the time, I did say that you know a, a good chunk of their offensive struggles did come down to shooting variance. I admitted that, but what I'll also say is, for as well as they're playing, and for as good as their record is with Luca Doncic in the lineup, by the way, the point I made to me still stands because my point was that. You have a talent like Luka Doncic in year four with some of the possibilities that were out there. Now, I know there's no guarantees with free agency trades or whatever, but the point is you, you, you're you in year four with Luka Doncic, and since kind of breaking through as like a surprise playoff team in what, his second year or whatever, you haven't really made progress roster-wise, uh, ceiling-wise, and it's like, yeah, they're playing well. Realistically, how far do you think this team can go in the playoffs? Uh, I think they, if they finish in the four or five bracket, they could definitely win around. Like I, I, mean, I it depends, think, I guess who, who finishes four and like, yeah, the Grizzlies have been great, but I think it would be something close to a coin toss if those two teams met in the first round. Okay. But, but again, that's my point. And then that was my point at the time is like they, and I, the, we discussed it already. Like, you know, they took the swing on Porzingis. Who's been really good this season? I know, I know. We're not going to relitigate that. Like, I'm not hating on them for that, but it is a results based business. And when you have a talent like Luca, and and I said this at the time too, like he's under contract for a long time. Like, by and I I wrote this in the piece. Like, by no means am I saying it's now or never this year, but I do think it's a shame that for as good as he is, and I also, by the way, at the time said he deserves some of the blame for this season too because he was out of shape and stuff. But all I was saying, and I stand by it, is that. When a player is like as transcendent a talent as Luka Doncic is, and you you know he's in year four, like talent wise, we're talking about like an MVP caliber player, and you had got to where you had got to like by his second season, the fact that not even just results wise, but even like roster wise, roster construction, the team around him, when there to me hasn't been much, if any, progress over the last two years, and their ceiling hasn't really moved up more. Like we're talking about them. Well, they'd it'd be a coin toss if maybe they can win a round if they finish in the four or five. Like to me, that is a wasted season in that player's championship seeking career or contending seeking career. So that's still my stance on that. Is this then like is this a wasted season? I mean, I guess you could say that it is. Is it a wasted season for Nikola Jokic? Is it a wasted season no, for but a wasted season has to like Nikola Jokic, the Nuggets got snake bitten by injuries. The Mavericks haven't built a good enough team around Luka Doncic. I think there's a big difference. All right, let's not let's not get too yeah, okay. Yeah. Because we'll be we'll be here all day. <laughs> but uh, why don't we take a quick break, actually, and and we'll come back and we'll talk about Clay and Kyrie. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. 
And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, last episode we were teeing up two long-anticipated returns, or one long-anticipated return, one return that, I mean, I guess I reached a point where I wouldn't say like Kyrie was forgotten about or that the the idea of him coming back had like been wiped totally off of the table. But I feel like I was in a in a place where I was like, OK, this is the Nets team, like until further notice, until Kyrie decides he's going to get vaccinated, like we should just assume that this is going to be the Nets team going forward. Obviously, they caved, uh, changed their stance on allowing him to be a part time player. And he's back. And Clay Thompson, after two and a half years away from the NBA, is also back. And it's just, you know, the fact that these two returns happened a few days apart made them ripe for comparison in a way, or contrast would maybe be a better way to put it, because I do think the emotional contrast between those two returns was pretty stark. You know, you have Clay, who's been sidelined for all this time due to circumstances entirely beyond his control. And then Kyrie has been out due to this very fraught situation entirely of his own making. And, you know, you have Clay returning in front of that raucous home crowd in the Bay and Kyrie coming back on the road and playing only on the road. I just thought, yeah, it it made for like an interesting juxtaposition. But, you know, it just in basketball terms, I guess. What did uh, what did you think of these these two guys getting back, how they looked how they project, I guess, to help their teams moving forward. What are your, what are your takeaways from, from Clay and Kyrie's returns? So for Kyrie, like, you know, for both of them, I'd say it was kind of what I expected for Kyrie. Like, I, I don't think it's been great, but I think there have been moments or flashes of his usual brilliance. Uh, I think through two games, he's scored 44 points on 48 individual possessions. So obviously not as efficient as we're used to, or when he's at his best, but also to be expected when he's been off as long as he's been. And, you know, I, I don't know how I many basketball he had been or basketball related activities he had even been doing while he was off. But we talked a lot about how this team needs and Kyrie could help with some, you know, north south juice and getting maybe to the rim more. And, you know, this is a team that very much relies on the shot creating and playmaking brilliance of James Harden and Kevin Durant. But they did need some rim pressure. And I think Kyrie did show the ability to do that, which is what we expected. Even just last night, uh, he had 11 shots in the paint. But going back to what I was talking about last week, it's like, we can look with these things, say, okay, like, yeah, he's coming along or there's this flash of brilliance and like, here's how he'll help. And he will help them get a few more wins. But again, it's like, he's already played two games, right? One of them, James Harden didn't play because he had a knee issue. And now you're already down to, well, there's only 20 games remaining where Kyrie is eligible to play. How many of those are all three of the big three actually going to play together? And and you did see it a little bit in both games. Like, this is still very much a disjointed team that doesn't look quite together. I don't mean together, like, emotionally or off the court. Like, just basketball sense. Like, this still is a disjointed team. And I, I keep harping on it, but I don't understand how that's really going to change when we're talking about a guy who's going to play part-time again. You know, even with, okay, he's got 20 eligible games left, but there's no guarantee the other guys will be there. There's no guarantee he'll be healthy for all 20 of those games. Like, I think it's very much going to be like this. There will be moments of brilliance. I'm sure there will be, you know, a couple games, maybe a few games where you're like, wow, they do not win that game if it wasn't for Kyrie being there and playing the way he did. But big picture, it's just so hard for me to, to like buy into this really changing the outcome for them or like elevating their ceiling or any of that. Yeah, it just like speaks to what is this team, right? Like after they put that big three together last season, those three guys appeared in eight regular season games and six playoff games together. And then whatever. So they played 15 total games together right now. Right. And then, yeah, he he misses the first, whatever, 35 games of this season. Then he comes back and it's like, oh, look, the big three are back together again. Oh, and then, you know, they have two home games after that that he doesn't play in. They go back on the road. Now hardens out with, I think, a calf injury. Calf which... or knee? I thought it was like a knee hyperextension or something. Oh, right, right. Sorry, a knee, a knee hyperextension. It, it doesn't sound serious, though. Well, yeah. Like... I mean, like, it, it's... Sorry, let me rephrase that. A knee hyperextension <laughs> sounds serious yes. by definition, 
the way they are talking about it doesn't make it sound serious. Yeah, which is when it comes to the Nets and yeah. how they talk, you know what I mean? I, I just, it might not be. Uh, it might be nothing or it might be something. But either way, it's like another game. One of the few games that Kyrie is eligible to play in and Harden can't play. Uh, and so, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal. And I guess it's not. It is just one game in the grand scheme of things. But it's one of, like you mentioned, 20 games that Kyrie is going to be eligible to play and Harden's not there. It's just the the more of those games that happen, like the harder it becomes to build cohesion. And I remember talking about this last year and being like, OK, you know, if there is a team where on-court reps just don't really matter that much as far as like getting its three best players sort of in rhythm and on the same page, it's Brooklyn, because all three of those guys can completely warp defenses with their gravity and are just such transcendent one-on-one players that you can kind of just throw them on the court together. And maybe it's not going to be perfect, but like you can probably still rely on having really strong offense just because of what those three guys are capable of doing individually. And then having two of them working off the ball, you're still going to have their shooting gravity that's going to draw defenders away. And that's presumably going to be enough at the offensive end. But again, to take it back to like the juxtaposition between, between Kyrie and clay and their returns, like in in a way, I feel like both of those guys you could say are, are like plug and play players, but for entirely different reasons, like with clay, it's obviously because he does, he doesn't need the ball. He never gets in anyone's way. His off ball gravity is going to translate to any environment and with Kyrie, it's because, you know, you can plop him into basically any situation and he's still just going to play like Kyrie, you know, like he doesn't, it's not like you need to run sets for Kyrie or like integrate him into your offensive system. You kind of just like give him the ball and let him dance and and see what he can make happen. And I think, you know, one thing you can say is he definitely injected some pace into the nets, which is something that I feel like they could really use. Um especially in that game against Indiana. I feel like he was getting them out in transition. Like he was getting to the rim. He was hitting these stop on a dime pull-ups on the break. With the Nets specifically, I guess, you you don't really worry about him interrupting their offensive flow because like what? What offensive flow? You know, (laughs) like it's kind of just, and and so that's for better or worse, right? It's like, okay, it makes it easy, I guess, to transition Kyrie in and out of the lineup, but then, I don't know, at what point do you start to worry about the fact that, first of all, you have a different team on the road than you have at home. Second of all, it's, yeah, their offensive junkiness is starting to become a bit of an issue. And I'm starting to think, well, maybe you do actually need a lot more reps with the three of these guys on the court together to start to get a little bit more flow in this offense because... I just don't think that game against Indiana when in the second half Kyrie looked really good and the Nets offense looked really good. I don't think that's a good gauge because that team not only was playing on the second night of a back-to-back, but is absolutely decimated with injuries and COVID right now where they're missing like, I don't know, seven rotation players. I just don't think that's a great way to judge. And especially, you know, given the fact that since then uh, they, got beaten down by the Bucks for the second time this season. That was without Kyrie, but still. Then they barely scraped out a win over the Spurs, in which they didn't score for the last, like, four and a half minutes of regulation. And then go out on the road, Kyrie's there, Harden's not. They play a similarly decimated Blazers team without Dame, without CJ, without Norm Powell, without Larry Nance, and somehow lose that game. So... And I want to say, too, sorry to interrupt, I want to say, too, because a lot of people, and like Nash even pointed out the day before they went, like that, it was a really tough back-to-back going from home to Portland, like the Sunday day, the Monday night. And that is all true, Mm -hmm. but it is a lot harder to use that excuse when just last week you lost to a decimated Clippers team that was on a back-to-back, okay? So, yeah, is there a bit of a baked excuse? Yes, but am I going to buy it from this team given their recent track records? Hell no. I've preached patience with this Nets team pretty much all season saying, you know, Harden would eventually round into form. He would get better. Like there's no way their offense can remain this bad. Like let's wait for Joe Harris to get back, which is still, you know, an an important missing piece for them, obviously. And 
a big part of their struggles, honestly, like they're 25th in three point attempt rate this season and 17th in three point percentage, which again, you can point to the injuries and absences, but it's, this is just not what you would have expected from this Brooklyn team with this much shooting and this much perimeter talent to be shooting it that poorly, to be shooting it from deep that infrequently. Uh, and for that to be where they've really struggled because honestly, like their, their rim frequency, which was, you know, bottom three in the league for the majority of the season up until, you know, the last couple of weeks has really started to trend upwards. And I think Claxton being back has been a big part of that. Um, and, you know, Harden, Harden's starting to get to the rim a little bit more. And then guys like Bembry and Bruce Brown and James Johnson, like just as sort of slashers and guys who are short rolling, they've injected a little bit more rim pressure into their attack. So that's actually started to improve, but the jump shooting isn't at all. And I assume like Kyrie is going to get to that point eventually, but so far he's shooting like 30% from deep in his two games. So it hasn't, hasn't really meaningfully changed uh, that element of Brooklyn's offense. And like, you look at KD, man, like KD is obviously an unbelievable shooter, but he really doesn't take a lot of threes. Like he does the majority of his damage from mid range and, and without Harris there, it's really just like Patty Mills who's giving them that volume three point shooting and Harden, I guess as well. But, but yeah, I don't know. It's just, it, it's getting hard for me to like remain optimistic about the Nets' big picture outlook, given all the struggles that I've seen from them. And given the fact that, like I keep saying, like the, their defense is top 10 still somehow. And I just don't think that it's sustainable. Like they're number one in both opponent three point shooting uh, and opponent mid range shooting, which I, I just don't. I mean, you, maybe it'll sustain itself. Like one team has to finish tops in opponent three point shooting every year, right? So maybe it'll yeah. be them. But I, I don't think that this is a particularly good defensive team. And the lack of interior defense really concerns me. Like, you know, look look at that Indiana game, right? Like Sabonis absolutely demolished them inside. And they wound up closing that game with like super duper small with, I think, Mills, Kyrie, Harden, Bembry, and KD. And it worked like they had... Harden was like the primary on Sabonis and we know what Harden can do as a post defender, especially when you have guys who can kind of swarm and double team help and recover, like get their hands in passing lanes, et cetera. But I like how much of this is sustainable for them at the defensive end of the floor is uh, a big question to me. And uh, it's, it's just going to become a bigger and louder question if their offense continues to struggle on a happier note, clay. (laughs) Yes. Clay. I mean, I, Similar to what I was saying about Kyrie, where it kind of went as I expected, I'd say the same about Clay. Like the Warriors were forcing it a little bit, I think, to get him involved and get him the ball early on in that game, and that's not really their their usual mo, and it won't be going forward. I think as he settles into the you know the, the flow of things into the offense, the Warriors settle back into having Clay on the floor and still running their usual offense. I think everything will run smoothly. I think the encouraging thing has to be just the way he was moving; like he didn't really look. Uh, like he was laboring at all. He threw down that great dunk that uh, I didn't expect to see him, you know, explode off the ground like that anytime soon. So I think in terms of like the look and the feel stuff, it it looked pretty good and really encouraging. And then, yeah, in terms of, you know, like the nitty gritty X's and O stuff, it looked like they were forcing things a bit and maybe even he was too, but that stuff I'm not worried about. Uh, I also just thought like, even just atmosphere wise, like you, you mentioned uh, the stark contrast between, you know, the emotions of the clay return, the Kyrie return, the atmosphere, obviously we were just watching it on TV, but the atmosphere in Chase Center in San Fran sounded incredible. And to be honest with you, it was the first time since the move from Oakland to San Fran that on TV, at least it sounded and felt like you were almost watching an an old Warriors game at Oracle in terms of like the crowd from the beginning, starting lineups, the, the way they were at every moment of the game, you know, clay on the court, like all of it, it just kind of felt like vintage warriors at Oracle and it was fun to watch. You know, I had mentioned, I think it was in the play in game that they lost. I had mentioned that cause they were wearing Oakland jerseys that night, if you recall, but obviously they've already made the move to San Fran last year was their second season back in San Fran. And at the time I had tweeted something. And, oh, and what happened was the fans started clearing out early when the game was like, okay, it was probably out of reach in the final minute, but like they still had a bit of a chance. You have Steph Curry and 
and I think I tweeted something on the t- at the time, like, okay, they like, you know, they put Oakland on their chest on the team's jerseys, but like that's San Fran walking out of the building because the the contrast and like the crowd experiences between Oracle and San Fran was very obvious. But you know, if I'm gonna troll a fan base for that, I'll also have to give credit. And the atmosphere in San Fran sounded incredible for Clay's return. And it did sound like it was the first time since the move from Oracle that it sounded like an old Warriors crowd. Yeah, and I do think it's, I'm not discounting the fact that the crowd in Oakland was like more raucous or just better overall than the probably more white collar corporate type crowd that we're seeing in San Fran. But I do think it's worth pointing out that, you know, immediately upon the move to San Francisco, the team went into the tank. Like they haven't had nearly as much to cheer for in San Francisco as they did in Oakland. So yeah, I thought like that atmosphere was obviously great and I thought it was really cool seeing Draymond be in the starting lineup and to to start the game for Clay's return, even though he had apparently picked up. He was the one with the calf injury, I think. Right? Yes. That's, that's yeah. where I was getting confused. He had a calf injury that he picked up, I guess, in warmups. Um, so he just immediately took that foul to check out of the game. But I thought that was cool to to just make a point of being in the starting lineup for that game. And like a good, just a good demonstration, I guess, of, you know, on top of like, all the hoopla and like all the guys showing up to the game wearing Clay Thompson jerseys. Like it obviously means so much, especially to Draymond and Steph, like the guys who have been there from the start and helped, you know, with Clay sort of build the Warriors into what they became and I guess what they are now. Um, how much it meant to them for him to be coming back was was cool to witness. And, you know, to your point about like the on court stuff. Clay had a 42.6 usage rate in that game. He got up, what was it, like 18 shots, I think, in in, in 19 or 20 minutes. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, like to your point, I think they, they were obviously going out of their way, force feeding him. I mean, they ran their first play of the game for him, coming off of that wide pin down and knifing into the lane and hitting a floater. Uh, they were looking for him at every opportunity, and I think it'll be a little bit more organic moving forward. But I do think, you know, the horizontal movement looked pretty good. It's funny because I was actually thinking before that dunk, I I don't know, like, it doesn't seem like Clay has a lot of lift. And even like on that same possession, like right before that happened, Warriors were kind of getting out in semi-transition and Clay was sort of streaking toward the basket. I can't remember who it was who hit him with a pass, but he caught it under the rim and it looked like he had an opportunity to go up with it. Jared Allen was like a half step behind the play and clay kind of, he made it a, a decision that he wasn't going to go up with it, that he was going to pull it back out. And he wound up taking this short turnaround fadeaway that was way short, like grazed the front of the rim. And at that point I was like about to start making a note, like clay just doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence, confidence in his finishing ability. Like the lift isn't really there. The warriors get the offensive rebound on that miss. And like 10 seconds later, it's like he draws Allen out on a switch, crosses him over, and then throws down that dunk. And so I didn't wind up writing the note. But um, I, I still think in spite of that dunk, I think, you know, the it, it might take a little while for his lift to come all the way back. And with the defense, I think, you know, it was it was sort of hard to judge because he was basically guarding. He was guarding like Lowry Markinen, Lamar Stevens, guys like that. But basically to the point that we made on our last episode when we were talking about him not needing to be the same guy defensively, I think that sort of hammered it home, right? Like they can hide him on lesser threats. And, you know, there were he, he got switched on to Mobley a couple times and I thought held his own. And I think maybe him guarding up the positional spectrum, like guarding bigger players, because he is a strong dude. And I think, you know, maybe putting him in defensive situations where tracking guys around screens and things that require like a lot of the lateral agility. Um, maybe you, sh- you sort of shield him from those types of assignments and nudge him more toward the ones where he's just sort of using his strength to body up bigger players. Like I think that could be pretty beneficial. And then you have Wiggins who like he wound up taking the, the Darius Garland assignment in that game. I think that can work. And it's not like, you know, like Clay got switched on to Garland on one possession, um, wound up taking a foul, but I thought he did a pretty good job like hanging with Garland and he bit on a pump fake and grazed him with the body. But I I didn't think there were any plays that stood out where I was like, ooh, Agreed. that's 
that's a tough look for Clay at the defensive end of the floor. Like I thought he was pretty good. I completely agreed. Also, while you were talking, <clears throat> hot off the press, NBA uh, PR sent the following that uh, Clay's return was the most viewed regular season moment ever across social media in the NBA. Wow. It was the most viewed regular season game on NBA TV in six years. And it was the highest rated regular season game on NBC Sports Bay Area since 2016. So talk about kind of like the the atmosphere and the, and all that. You know, it, it was, it obviously extended far beyond just the Chase Center and, and the Bay Area. Like in terms of people consuming it on various social media platforms, obviously people watching it locally in the Bay Area and people watching it nationally and internationally as well on NBA TV. Like this was... The numbers bear out that this was very much like a moment that people, basketball fans of all stripes, of all ages, like wanted to be a part of in some way. And I think that's awesome because I think Clay brings that out in people because he, it, like, you can just tell like how pure and authentic A, his love for the game is and how he just wants to hoop, but also just like how authentic of a dude, he, you know, when, he, when you hear him talk, when you hear him whether it's talking about the injury talk about basketball whatever like he just people overuse the whole like vibes thing these days but clay thompson really is just an immediate eject injection of good vibes and positive vibes and i think that resonates with fans not even just warriors fans yeah people really like clay thompson turns out <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was uh that was cool it was, it was a really fun game and you know i think he's obviously gonna help right? I, I don't think that was ever in doubt. Uh, even just like his off-ball gravity alone, that's going to help an offense that has very quietly been struggling a lot lately. They're down to, I think, 11th in offensive rating in the league. Um, he'll help goose that offense. I, I guess watching this game made it difficult to judge just like how much he's going to help because it was such a it was a different kind of game where I think Clay was being used in a way that he's not necessarily going to be used moving forward. And obviously Draymond not playing changed that equation a lot, but it was just great to see him back out on the floor and, and looking more or less like Clay. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think um, it's going to be really exciting again, not just for Warriors fans, but for basketball fans in general, I guess, unless maybe you're like a Suns or jazz fan. Right. Um, I think it's going to be really exciting to just watch what this Warriors team, not even just like what they can do and if they can win the title, cause that's obvious, but like just the beautiful basketball they will play as well. You know, now that they're back to being the Warriors. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, worth pointing out, I guess that in spite, I mean, again, tr we talk about Draymond being out and like, the, the way that they were sort of force-feeding Clay, they they still won that game with their defense. Like, it still wasn't a great offensive performance for the Warriors, but uh, they won because they held the Cavs to an 89.1 offensive rating. And that's without Draymond being there, too. I mean, that's obviously a great sign for their defense. It's just been airtight all season long. Um, and also, like, part of the reason I was interested to watch that game obviously, you know, on top of the clay return was it's like the small ball warriors going up against the tall ball Cavaliers. And I was very interested to see like which sort of stylistic proclivity was going to win out. And not only did the warriors win sort of on the strength of, of their speed and their shooting and their cutting, but they got 22 offensive rebounds in that game. Like they absolutely annihilated Cleveland on the glass and it's like, okay, when you get the benefits of being small in terms of your speed and perimeter ability, and you're also dominating on the boards, uh, it wasn't a great game for Cleveland. Like, no, it was like when, when you have the size advantage in a matchup where you are the inferiorly talented team and you lose the facets of the game that are supposed to benefit the more sizable team, like you're toast. Um, but yeah, to your point, that that wasn't the best of the Cavs this season. They're a better team than they showed that night. Yeah, really rough one for Garland, who, you know, I think we'll, we'll do our all-star picks at some point in the near future. Like, I think he's very firmly in that mix, but that was one of the worst games that I've seen him play this year. So uh, that definitely didn't help. But yeah, I just, I mean, it's 
it's cool to see that the Warriors can can still win in waves that belie their lack of size up front. So really excited to see. I mean, they're playing the, the Grizzlies tonight, which, you know, no Draymond, no Dylan Brooks. But apart from that, like, uh, I, I love the matchup between those two teams. Obviously, the play in between them was great. They played a really fun overtime game early in the season that the Grizzlies wound up winning. And now that the Grizzlies are knocking on the door of the top three in the West, they're on, what, a nine, a ten-game win streak nine, now? Nine, I think. Nine-game win streak, uh, going for ten tonight against Golden State. That will be a really good test. I mean, again, no Draymond, so maybe it's tough to say, but that'll be a good test of this Warriors defense because the Grizzlies can really do damage against small ball teams, as they showed in their game against the Lakers the other night when... I mean, first of all, like I, I don't know if we need to like rehash that John Morant block that set the internet on fire My the other night, God. but but just on top of that, uh, like there were there were some real highlights from that game. I just think if you don't have sufficient rim protection, they're gonna eat you up. Yep. And I thought it was this. Is, I guess this will be a bit of a tangent, but I feel like. We've heard a lot of talk about like the LeBron at five lineups for the Lakers. And I do think there are a lot of good things that have come out of that. You know, the biggest of which is just like for one off ball LeBron, like I, I've really liked seeing him in a role where he is playing like the, the rolling end of the pick and roll a lot and doing damage in that way. Obviously it's enhanced their spacing and that has led to a more efficient Westbrook, a more efficient Talon Horton Tucker. Offensively, LeBron it's definitely, has been more. Yes, exactly. Le- LeBron has been absolutely ridiculous it's but the benefits for the team have been mostly on the offensive end they've been entirely at the offensive yeah. end and it's like you know the, okay so you're you're playing small like maybe that makes you more switchable but like are your defenders going to be able to stay in front of their checks one-on-one when you're switching because the lakers are still i think now the bulls are allowing a higher proportion of shots at the rim but the lakers are still 29th in opponent rim frequency and the rim protection they're like 24th i think in terms of opponent field goal percentage at the rim so they're allowing a ton of shots at the rim they're not able to defend those shots they're not able to clean up the defensive glass because in those lebron at five lineups they have like a 71 percent defensive rebound rate and i think we saw against a paint oriented offensive team like memphis how precarious that can be like they gave up, I think 48 points in the restricted area in that game. Like that's a massive number. And it, they're, they're up to like something like 400 odd minutes now with, with uh, LeBron at the five. And they're, I think something like a plus three net rating in those minutes. So that's pretty good, but it's still like a 112 defensive rating. And I think the fact that, like it is probably like while AD is out, their best option. Like those are their best lineups. But I think the fact that those are their best lineups is still, you know, an indictment of this Lakers roster. So 100%. As, as gobsmacked as I have been by how LeBron has played lately and how effective he has been operating in those small ball lineups, I still remain totally nonplussed by this Lakers team as a whole. Uh, and I, I thought them just getting utterly beaten down by the Grizzlies in a game that was not nearly as close as the final score indicates was just a good reflection of how far away they still are from the cream of the Western Conference crop. Pithy summary. Headline reads, Wolfon, colon, Lakers stink. (laughs) Uh, Fast forward through that section uh, and just get the Cliff's notes from Cash. The Cash notes. Um. But yeah, sorry. Took, that, I I know that was a bit of a tangent. But anyway, I'm, no. I'm super stoked for that for that Warriors Grizzlies game. Yeah, those, I, uh, I mean, the Grizzlies are absolutely rolling right now. And even like the the block you mentioned it. I think we should just call it the block because it was one of the greatest blocks I've ever seen. I mean, I guess LeBron got the block when the chase down in Game Seven of the Finals. But still, Cha's uh, two handed soaring dunk that you know the the still images of it make it look like a huge dunk is coming. Um, it was incredible, but. It, to me, it just speaks to the fact that, like, obviously there are quantifiable things that we can talk about with John the Grizzlies that, like, make him a great player. There are things you can see when you watch him play basketball. I've talked about it since he was a rookie that I think he's got this very rare ability as a, like, quick water bug type 
guard to also manipulate the speed of the game and like slow down and control the tempo. I think it's a very rare combination for a guy that quick um, and explosive to also be able to manipulate speed and like the other way and, and control the game when he needs to. So all of that, like there are very quantifiable and um, describable uh, reasons why Ja is who he is. But I also think like when you talk about the non-quantifiable stuff, like he he's a special talent. He is just a freak explosive athlete. But like this guy really does have whatever your definition of it is. You know, like you talk about a, whether a player is like that it factor, the star factor, like for whatever reason, for wh- however it came up, maybe it's because as he mentioned on draft night, his, you know, his dad was his first hater. Maybe more de- like parents need to be. <laughs> no, don't be a hater to your kid. But like for whatever reason, this guy just has the, this something special, man. And whether it's like the highlights that he creates, the way he elevates his game in big uh, moments or even just the way he's elevated this team and like taking them to to heights that really no one thought they can go in the first few years of his career every year and there's just something about it like the the way he plays the game the way he carries himself I don't know if you kind of know what I'm talking about but like yeah he's just he's got this it factor that like just makes you believe you know like okay this guy this guy is going to do special things and Again, whether you can ever quantify that or not, I think some players have it and it's very distinguishable and it and it makes rooting for that player just watching that player fun and, and he definitely has it. And I think like if you're a Grizzlies fan or you're living in Memphis, like you gotta be so stoked about what the future holds for him and the Grizzlies because who doesn't want to root for a player like that and a young team with a star like that at the top of the roster? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with anything you just said there, but I also don't want to shortchange the rest of the Grizzlies roster. No, and I Jaren will say, Jackson's been great. Bain's been dude, great. In that game against the Lakers, I think Jaron Jackson was the best player on the floor. I agree. I agree. Uh, or maybe, I mean, LeBron was actually insanely good in that game. It's just he got absolutely no help from his supporting cast. But I think Jaron Jackson was the best Grizzlies player in that game. And and if you're talking about, like, you know, what did the most damage, I guess, against the Lakers' lack of size and sort of, flimsy interior defense i think it was jaron like he was destroying them on the interior um and then he's just been wicked defensively as well so despite the fact that he still hasn't shot the three ball particularly well this season everything else has been really sound Um, he was one of our swing players wasn't he he was one of our swing players and i think he has very much proven to be exactly that Uh, maybe we can revisit that list at some point in time because we we had some hits on that list and some big whiffs yeah well, which is you know that's gonna happen but no to, to your point about jaron and like him living up to his billing as a swing player for as great as jaw is as much as i obviously love watching him play when jaw was out and even when jaw's been in the lineup there have been plenty of times jaron's been the most valuable grizzly on the court and if you're talking about like a swing player jaw is who he is and is you know he's improving yes but he's he's been this good almost since he stepped on an nba court jaron jackson elevating his game and being the defensive linchpin too that he's been this year to me is the like the difference between them being this plucky kind of playing team and a team that right now is literally on pace for 56 wins like that's a big difference that's a swing it's nutty man and also i mean like to me like Desmond Bain's leap has been as big a sort of swing factor as Jaron Jackson's progression this season like i can't believe how good Desmond Bain is. and A, a lot of GMs can't either because they... <laughs> yeah, 29 GMs, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so that's a sufficient way, I think, to tee up the Warriors-Grizzlies game tonight, which uh, I just think is going to be an absolute barn burner. Uh, quickly back to the Nets, just because I, I briefly touched on their game against the Bucks, in which they basically got destroyed. And it's the second time this year that they played and the second time the Bucks have smacked them. Um, I mean, just in terms of that head-to-head matchup, I mean, it, they could very well meet in the second round with the way things are going right now, right? Like, like the, the Bulls Chicago's have the number playing. one seed, yep. so that's the way it could turn out. But I, I do think that it's likely that they will meet at some point in time and that the matchup between them could sort of determine how the Eastern Conference shakes out. We both, before the season started, picked Brooklyn to not only come out of the East but win the championship. I'm still willing to give it time to see if there are some things that Brooklyn can figure out, but do you feel like 
you know, those games and, and just the way Brooklyn has played in general and the way that Milwaukee has played in general. We haven't talked a lot about the Bucks this season. I think we'll have to devote more time to them on a future episode. But but how are you feeling, I guess, about about those two teams and how they stack up and whether Brooklyn is still uh, a favorite in the East or whether you think that mantle should go to Milwaukee at this point in time? I'd probably give it to Milwaukee right now, you know. As long as they don't run into the Hornets in the playoffs, right? (laughs) Yeah, for real. The Hornets have their number, man. Um, Great, great game winner by LaMelo last night, by the way. But the thing is, like, we both picked the Nets to win the East. And I think we both said, even at the time, like, even if it is just Harden and KD the entire season and Kyrie doesn't play, like, we were both still thinking they would win the East. I guess the difference for me now is that like, you know, the Kyrie stuff, I've already gone over that a million times about why it's never going to, like, there's still going to be a disjointed team with without him. For me, I guess the disappointing thing is that my stance on them has changed in terms of just KD and Harden. I don't think that's enough anymore. You know, I no longer think that is enough to get them over the hump in the East and a really good East too. And I think so much of like when I, when I'm like picking teams in the playoffs, for me, obviously, it's about, yes, what I'm seeing and what I'm like evaluating over the course of the season and the numbers and all that. But a lot of it, especially the deeper you go, so much of it does come down to like trust for me in a way. You know what I mean? It's like, do I trust this team or this player to like show up? Like all this stuff. And I think if you were asking me right now, based on what we've seen this season and obviously towards the end of last season, do you trust that the Nets talent will just prevail out of nowhere? Maybe they get Kyrie back, all that. Or do you trust? the player Giannis has become and what he's capable and that Bucks team. And now they've gotten over the hump. They don't have this dark cloud of can't get it done. And like based on the situation right now, like I would have to say, no, I, I trust Giannis more <laughs> than I trust the Nets talent just prevailing out of nowhere. So right now I'd give the edge to Milwaukee. And I think the, the matchup so far this season have also been a very good reason to believe that they have the edge. Yeah. And also so much of that just does come down to Harden, right? Because... Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, I think both at the start of the season would have been like Harden and KD should be enough, but not with this version of Harden. And I, he's had some good stretches for sure, but it feels like every time he seems to have turned a corner, he kind of backslides and starts to struggle again. And I, I, at the start of the season, was like, okay, like he's coming back from this hamstring injury. Like he's still playing his way back into shape. He's getting accustomed to the new rules in terms of shooting fouls, like he'll figure it out. He'll get back to being Harden at some point in time. And now I don't know that I can say that anymore. Like not that Harden's not really good. He obviously still is, but that's, it's one thing to be like an all-star caliber player and another to be like the MVP level player that Harden has been the past nine odd years. So, so that, that is one thing that's really changed for me. I do think, you know, a really interesting aspect of that last Nets Bucks game and something that, you know, with the Bucks, I, I still do think that the Brooke Lopez absence is a big question mark because they're just not nearly the same rim protecting team without him. You know, as good as Giannis has been playing the five a lot of the time, it's just, it, it's not quite the same. And I think you would think, okay, in that matchup, you worry about Brooklyn's interior defense going up against Giannis like, and their complete inability to stop him, which did bear out. But if you look at the total team numbers, uh, the Nets actually got to the rim way more in that game than the Bucs did. Uh, they scored 62 points in the paint. And it was actually like from the three-point line where the Bucs absolutely dominated them. And that's like going back to, to the lack of volume and the lack of accuracy that we've seen from Brooklyn this season from three-point range. They were six of 27 from deep in that game. The Bucks were 16 of 45. So the Bucks were plus 30 from beyond the arc in that game. And that, that was the game right there. So it's just inter- like they, they got to the rim a ton and uh, like the Bucks sort of vaunted interior defense didn't actually hold up. Uh, and I think that's kind of interesting that, that where they won that game was actually from the perimeter. Cause that's the opposite of what you would have expected coming into this season. Right. Right. Um, and then I guess the last point I'll make about that is like Blake Griffin was pretty important to the Nets in their series against Milwaukee last year. And good Lord, man, it, it is not the same rough Blake with yeah. him right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing is the fact that he can't hit a three to save his life, but then it's also, I mean, he was out of their rotation for a time and he's sort of been pressed into duty out of necessity. So maybe he'll just be back out of the rotation when the Nets get fully healthy again, but 
he can't finish at the rim at all right now. And they're trying to like run pick and roll with KD and Griffin and KD is getting blitzed every time. And then Griffin is like short rolling toward the basket in, you know, scenarios in which you would see him like dunk on anybody that tried to get in his way in the past. And it's like, you know, it was one thing in the Indiana game when Miles Turner was sort of sliding over to try and stop him at the rim. And he was like having to contort his body in all kinds of ridiculous ways to like avoid him and barfing up off balance shots at the rim. But then it's like, you see him against the Blazers and it's like Robert Covington sliding over to stop him and he still can't finish at the rim. Like watching, watching Blake try to finish right now has me contemplating mortality, man. It's really <laughs> sad. No, it, it's yeah. I, what I was going to say is like, I don't know. I don't know what's sad or when a player who's kind of like clearly lost it still thinks he has it and is like, he definitely doesn't. Or if it's sadder when a player who's clearly lost it is playing like he knows he's lost it. Mm-hmm. And doesn't have that belief anymore because that's Blake Griffin right now. Uh, yeah, I do think come playoff time he will probably be back into the rotation, and then that's like okay, so they they sort of need a new primary on Giannis, right? He was the guy uh, when they tried to guard him in single coverage and and had some decent success at times. Like Blake was the guy who was taking that assignment, and actually and it makes doing sense a, because a pretty because of his strength, job. his size, yeah. But but I don't know if they can keep him on the floor. No, uh, I don't either, and because you can't have him spotting up because he can't shoot and defenses are just going to completely ignore him. And you can't really involve him in action because the defense is just going to send two to the ball. And then he's not going to be a threat to finish at the rim. And that's also going to minimize the threat. He can be as a playmaker. So um, you're putting on Giannis if it's not Blake. So yeah, yeah. I, I think to answer your original question, like I said, I think the bucks right now, you'd have to say they would have the edge. Yeah. And, and like, man, it's just, you know, we talked at the start of the season about like, oh, wow, the Nets have like this top end talent, but they're also really deep. Yeah. Dude, KD is like routinely playing more than 40 minutes a game. Kyrie no, last no. night in his second game back played 39 minutes. It's, we're, we're not really seeing that depth that we thought the Nets were going to have be a factor right now. And like, yeah, they've had guys in and out of the lineup, but like, so is every team in the league this season. And I just think the the extent to which they've had to lean on their top guys to play ridiculous minutes is uh, a pretty troubling sign. Yeah. This is not what KD signed up for (laughs) when he joined forces with Kyrie Irving and then, you know, got James Harden to come to Brooklyn too. Like it's, he's, he's like taking a time machine back to that thunder season when Russ was hurt. And I mean, he won MVP that year, but still, you know what I mean? Like it, from a, I mean, he's in, he could he could win it this year. He's definitely yeah, yeah. in that mix. But um, but in terms of like a supporting cast and support in general on the court, he's teleported back to a time uh, when his team was not able to win a championship. I also think like last year when their offense was like I think the had the, they had the best offensive rating maybe in history last year. It wasn't just like the isolation exploits of their best guys. They were also they were implementing like a lot of weak side activity right like they would you know they'd be running pick and roll on one side of the floor on the other side of the floor they'd have guys cutting or they'd be doing a weak side exchange or they'd like running a pin down engaging those weak side defenders i feel like a lot of that stuff's just fallen by the wayside man like it's a lot more stagnant than it was last year uh and i think they they do really miss joe harris for that reason because he so often is the guy who is like running off of screens and cutting and relocating on the weak side but like i don't know i just feel like there's got to be more that they can do to get a little bit more motion and activity into their offense. Cause it's, it's kind of sludgy right now. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's leave that there. Cash, you uh, have a fan shout out for us before we leave. I do. Daniel Ramos, Ramos. I think it's Ramos. Daniel Ramos from Ajax, Ontario, Canada, where my sister lives actually. Um, I do love that in his email to me, he reached out via email. He said that he proudly, uh, is from Ajax, but claims Toronto and will accept all slander related to that. That's fine. Ajax is, is part of the greater Toronto area. Um, he said he's been listening for three or four years now, so I guess that would make him pretty close to a day oneer. Uh, he emailed first to say uh, Forza Azzurri after they won the, the Euro and that he really hopes we make it through the World Cup qualification playoffs. Uh, to that, I say you and me both, Daniel, because as you mentioned in your email, another World Cup without Italy is actually criminal. But anyway, he said he loves the show. Uh, because he thinks we remain impartial in our analysis, despite being obvious Raptors fans, <laughs> and that he uh, he gets sobering analysis from us, which he appreciates, and that a lot of his basketball knowledge has come 
from us. And then he actually ended it. Maybe I should have maybe given you a heads up on this, Wolf on, so you would have been able to prepare, but it's fine. Uh, he ended it by saying if either of us can give a must-read book or something like a basketball book that as we were growing up or whatever maybe helped us learn about the game. The one thing I'll say for me personally, like I, in terms of knowledge of the game, like learning about the game, most of it just came like it does with, with all my sports knowledge. It's just like I watched an obscene amount of all sports growing up still do and consumed so much sports tv in various forms highlight shows all that um and and you know even as a kid i was like reading sports stuff in the newspaper and beat writers and stuff like that i was a subscriber to sports illustrated so in terms of like my knowledge the day-to-day stuff the game like all that i'd say came from not necessarily reading books but i will say there have been so many basketball books I've read in my life that I've enjoyed that have maybe helped me understand like the history of it a bit more, what happened in this time period a bit more. And there are literally too many for me to list off, but two that come to my mind. Um, one was, uh, I think it was, it came out maybe like 10, 15 years ago. I want to say I was like a teenager. Uh, I don't know if you remember, it was Chris Ballard who used to work for sports illustrated. He wrote, uh, the art of a beautiful game. That was a really good book. And then obviously the breaks of the game. Um, yeah, about the 79-80 Blazers season. I always forget the author's name. David Halberstam. There you go. So if if I was going to recommend like two books for me in terms of what I remember growing up, not that necessarily was like what determined my knowledge of the game, but those two would be it. Yeah, Breaks of the Game was amazing as a snapshot of so many things. Like it, it was like a the league in transition basically and like a going from a period where like you had finals games being broadcast on tape delay uh, sort of moving into the Magic and Bird era where the game became a whole lot more commercialized. And obviously it's, you know, just like a, an in-depth look uh, into like the year in the life, basically, of a, of a middling team. Uh, and one that was, you know, they were reeling from the loss of Bill Walton and sort of trying to make it work. But it's like a good a good showcase for just like even the most average NBA teams. Like they're, they're, they're just so full of like interesting characters and storylines and subplots and things like that. And like, that Blazers team was unremarkable, but out of it came this remarkable work of art and like this remarkable look into the inner workings uh, of an NBA team, of the business of basketball. Like there's so many incredible insights in that book. And um, that's probably the one that I would recommend. Well, Daniel, I hope we've uh, answered your question admirably. <laughs> and uh, we, we very much appreciate you reaching out to us. I hope you enjoy the fan shout out, usual call out. I think we have two or three banked right now. So for like this week and next week, but we're going to need more doing two episodes a week. So please hit us up on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo at Joey W email Joe.Wolfon at the score.com Joseph.Cacharo at the score.com Instagram. Find me Joe underscore 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 cash. Reach out and let us know how long have you been listening to pound the rock? Where are you listening from? Throw in any observations, funny, comments anecdotes you want and we will get you a shout out on a future episode of pound the rock all right thanks cash thank you daniel and to all our listeners as always appreciate you tuning in we will talk to you all again on friday for now we're signing off for joseph cacharo i'm joe wolf on pound the rock 